We're in the uh, fourth part of uh, this series, as Josh has already said, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, if you haven't been here, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, um, you can go online on our website, gracepointtopeka.org, and you can catch up with all of those uh, messages. Um, they're there for free, forever, for anybody, uh, if you want to catch that uh, and check that out. Um, but we're going we're to jump into part four here today. Um, most of us had to read um, To Kill a Mockingbird in high school. But most of you don't remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird in high school because you didn't care about it in high school, right? So some of you need to go back and reread this story. Um, but um, to, the, the title for the book comes from, I'm going to go ahead and grab a handheld. Okay. The title of the book comes from a scene in the book where Atticus, the dad, is, um, he, he buys air rifles for his kids, um, Scout and her brother, and says, you can kill any bird you want except for mockingbirds, right? You can kill any bird you want except for mockingbirds because mockingbirds don't eat people's crops. They don't harm anything. They just sing pretty songs. So the, the, the mockingbird is a metaphor for helping helpless people. It's a metaphor for helping people in the story. So to not kill a mockingbird means we don't take advantage of helpless people. It's a major theme throughout the entire story. And the, the, the metaphor, the theme gets even deeper in the story when we're introduced to the character of Tom Robinson, right? It's a black man who has been accused of assaulting a white woman. And because Atticus is an attorney, he's a lawyer, he decides to defend him. And Atticus does so brilliantly, and it's obvious, as you read the story, it's obvious that Tom did not do this, right? Atticus does a great job. It's obvious that he did not do this until an all-white jury convicts him anyway. And part of the lesson Atticus teaches Scout is we never take advantage of helpless people. Instead, we defend them, right? About a year ago, here in Topeka, there's a viral video a 12-year-old girl beating up a 14-year-old girl. Comes up from behind her, starts pushing her, starts grabbing her hair, starts punching her in the face, starts kneeing her and kicking her in the face repeatedly over and over and over. It was horrific. It was horrific. What was doubly horrific was the kids standing around watching this happen, laughing. There's something visceral. There's something visceral about injustice. And, and when we see people just standing there doing nothing, I don't know about you, but anger rises up inside of me. And then there's the, the honest question that I ask, would I have done anything? <laughs> would I have gotten involved in that? So the question we're going to ask today, what does God say? about injustice, and what is our role as the church in addressing it? What does God say about injustice, and what is our role as followers of Jesus in addressing that issue? And the reason we're looking at this is not because of any political acts I have to grind. I have no acts, and I'm not grinding anything. The reason that we're looking at this is because that is where we are today in Ecclesiastes, all right? 
So if you have a Bible or a mobile device and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16, okay? The teacher is going to point out some things that we've all wondered. Um, maybe you haven't wondered it in the same way that he has. There, he, he asked some honest, real-life questions that he's frustrated with, that he sees in front of him. And um, here's, here's what he has to say. Ecclesiastes 3.16, he says, And I saw something else under the sun. Circle under the sun. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. He notices corruption in the courthouse. Apparently, Tom Robinson wasn't the first to experience injustice in court. This has been going on for a long time. It's been around for a while. He's observing real-life stuff, and he's frustrated by it. He's angry about it, and he's going to tell us what he thinks we should do about it. Verse 17, I said to myself, that's important. You should underline that. He's, he's just having a conversation with himself. He's not telling us what God thinks about this. He's telling us what he thinks about it. That's important, all right? I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. He's not talking about the final judgment here because as we're about to find out, his theology on the afterlife is kind of fuzzy, okay? He's talking about judgment that happens in this life. He's saying, surely God is eventually gonna bring justice to those who are oppressed, isn't he? Surely that will happen. Still talking to himself in verse 18. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. What in the world does that mean? Surely God will eventually bring justice for people who are struggling and oppressed. But until he does that, the oppressors and those who perpetuate evil gain confidence. They think, you know what, I'm getting away with it, so I'm going to keep doing it. And the evil piles on, and the oppression gets pushed down even more to the point where some people become like animals. Some people get a gun and walk into an African-American church in Charleston and mow people down. They're like animals. But when you think about it, an animal wouldn't do that. Animals don't do that. Animals don't kill indiscriminately. They kill for food or self-defense. So it's, it's actually worse. It's actually worse than animals. April 6th, 1994, president of Rwanda was flying in his plane over the capital city of Kigali when, when the plane was shot down. And that event began what we know of as today, so the, the Rwandan genocide, the Hutu tribe went after the Tutsi tribe, and in 100 days, killed 1 million of them. 10,000 people a day were massacred in Rwanda. That never happens in the animal kingdom. And, and there are dozens of memorials all over Rwanda with the clothes, the belongings, some places even the bones of those who were massacred during that. Those memorials are in place to remind them of what happened so it never happens again. But you know what? It probably will. Somewhere. Because we're worse than animals. <laughs> the animal kingdom doesn't even do that. That's what our teacher is observing. It gets worse. 
okay? So strap in tight. Verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Listen to this. Humans have no advantage over animals. (laughs) Everything is meaningless. Then he drives it home with this last argument. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Can't really argue with him. Like he's, he's saying, we're all going to die one time. The, the, just like animals, you're going to be planted six feet under, just like Spot is planted six feet under. You're going to decompose. Your dog will decompose. There's really no difference between you and your dog. That's what he's saying. Verse 21. Here's where he gets a little fuzzy. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Who knows? I don't really know what happens to our spirits. What he's saying here is contra-biblical. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches, okay? Jesus says in, in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. That seems to be the opposite of what the teacher is saying. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The, the teacher says, who knows where our spirit goes? Jesus says, I do. There's life beyond death. So kind of looks like a contradiction. Jesus says one thing, the teacher says the opposite. But remember, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us what life is like under the sun. And under the sun is living as if God does not exist, living a completely secular lifestyle, completely like God, if God is there, he doesn't care. He's not, really, he's not really paying attention. So what he's saying is, if you see injustice in the world and you don't believe God is real or, or God is active, pretty much all you can hope for is dying and decomposing. So what you, that's, that's, that's what happens under the sun if there is no God. The, uh, the, the famous atheist author Richard Dawkins said, religion teaches the dangerous nonsense that death is not the end. Our author agrees more with Richard Dawkins than he does with Jesus. This is life under the sun. If you don't believe that God is in the picture and you look at injustice in the world, pretty much all you have is, well, at least one day we'll be dead and we don't have to deal with it anymore. It's all you got. It's all there is to offer under the sun. And, and that's helpful for us to keep in our minds as we move forward into hearing some of his solutions to it, okay? That's what he gets into next. Look at verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them or happen after they die? So because you're gonna die because you can't see anything beyond that, the best thing you can do is just enjoy your work. That's his solution for addressing injustice in the world. Just, just keep your head down, put some blinders on, and enjoy your work until you die. Okay, he's not done. Keep reading. Chapter 4, he changes from injustice to oppression, but it's still the same idea. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Did you hear that? Saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. It seems like we're trying to, we're starting to see a little bit of compassion from him here. He's speaking to the abuse of power. There are people in power, they're oppressing those without it, 
and there's no one to defend them, no one to stand up for those who are weak or helpless. Hey, aren't you so glad that doesn't happen anymore? (laughs) I mean, our modern, sophisticated society, it just never happens, right? He sees the tears of the oppressed, but they don't find anyone comforting them or standing up for them. So in verse two, he says, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. All this oppression, it just shows that it's better to be dead than alive because dead people can't be oppressed. But then he gets even worse. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So it's better to be dead than to be alive, but it's even better to never have been born because you never get oppressed in the first place. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Ugh. This is his solution to injustice. This is his solution to oppression. Yeah, it's tough. It'd been better if you'd never been born. (laughs) Not exactly helpful, right? But remember, remember, he's giving us a perspective of life under the sun. A mentality, a worldview that says there is no God involved. And because there's no God involved, all these oppressed people just need to wait until they die. It'll be better then. He shifts in, 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 in verse four to a different kind of oppression. He says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. He's talking about climbing the corporate ladder. And if you've got to step on a few people along the way, so be it. Because it's getting to the top that matters. That's what he's talking about here. But he comes to the conclusion that this too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. When, when you get to the top of the ladder and you realize it's all vapor, I worked so hard for all of this. That's what he's saying. So there's a couple things he suggests we do when you get to that point. Verse five tells us the first one. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Folded hands are, are hands that can't work. So when they come to the conclusion that climbing the corporate ladder is just a waste of time, a fool gives up and says, I quit. They go passive. I'm just going to fold my hands and, and do nothing. Proverbs 6.10 um, alludes to this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what's, the, what's the, the result? Poverty will come on you like a thief. Scarcity, like an armed man. That's what he's talking about when he says they ruin themselves. They're not ruined by somebody else. They ruined themselves. So that's one option. You just give up. Second option he gives us at the end of verse six, two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That's the second option is to go after it with two handfuls. This is the kid at Halloween who sees the unattended candy bowl on the front porch and they go at it with both hands, right? The ring doorbell sees the kid just going at it. With both hands. That's the imagery here. It's the image of greed, right? So one thing you can do when you realize that climbing the corporate ladder is a chasing after the wind is to give up and go passive. The other thing you can do is double down. Just go at it with both hands. Try to get more and more and more and more. But did you notice both reactions end in ruin? One of them ends in ruin. The other one ends in chasing after the wind. It's, it's pointless, So 
If you go in passive, doesn't do it. Doubling down doesn't do it either. Here's the third option. Look at verse uh, six. Better one handful with tranquility. It's a good word. Underline that word. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The Hebrew concept of one handful infers a small amount. It's, it's the teacher saying, being content with less is better than being greedy. Not a popular message in America. Being content with less is better than being greedy, okay? So here's, here's what he said so far, okay? In a, in a nutshell, this is basically his solution to injustice and oppression in the world. Be quiet, enjoy your work, don't be greedy. That's it. See all the injustice, all the oppression under the sun? Just be quiet, enjoy your work, don't be greedy. Now, you also need to know embedded in the concept of oppression in the ancient world was this idea that to make more money, to get rich, business owners, landowners had to oppress their workers. So injustice was the direct result of greed or wanting two fistfuls instead of just one. So he's saying, if you can get rid of greed, you can get rid of oppression or you'll at least have less oppression in the world. Which, that's helpful, right? I think that's helpful. But it's not enough. Like we said from the very beginning, it's not enough, but it's not nothing. It's a good principle. Like, let's not be greedy. Let's not take advantage of people. That's, that's good. But it's not enough. If we really want to know what God thinks about injustice and our response to it, we need more than what the teacher in Ecclesiastes has given us. Right? So, so we're going to go through a few other passages because we still haven't answered the question. What does God say about injustice and our role in addressing it? Instead of me telling you what I think, I'm just going to tell you what God says. Okay? We're going to look at a couple of these scriptures. Before we look at these scriptures, let me tell you what God says all throughout these scriptures. This is what God is going to say through this. Okay? We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. That's what he's going to say over and over and over all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. So here we go. Isaiah 10, verse 1, God says to the prophet, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Woe to those who take advantage of the poor. Woe who take advantage of widows, who take advantage of orphans. Woe to those who take advantage of helpless people. We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. Jesus uses similar language. He's talking to the religious leaders of his day who, who thought, well, we give to the church, we tithe, we give money, so we're good with God. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Here it is. But you neglect justice and the love of God. Those two things go together. Justice and God's love go together. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. He says, don't stop giving. That's not what I'm saying, but quit neglecting justice. Jesus shared his father's heart for helpless people. He shared his father's heart for justice. Justice. 
Amos, 20, in Amos uh, 5.23, the people were saying, God, we're worshiping you through our songs. Here's God's response. Away with the noise of your songs. <laughs> I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Have you ever seen a river at flood stage? Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the justice from God's people when it flows like a river. And then Isaiah 58, the people said, but Lord, we're fasting. I mean, look at how committed we are. We're fasting. God said, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? What does that have to do with fasting? What does that have to do with commitment? God says, the kind of commitment I'm looking for is for you to not take advantage of helpless people, but defend them. And then in Jesus' coming out party, in Luke chapter 4, he's in the synagogue. In Nazareth, he opens up Isaiah's scroll, and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm fulfilling this today. This is about me. Here's what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Whew. See, there's a debate, and you may not know this, but there's a debate. It's not a new debate. It's been around since the 70s. And when I say 70s, I mean 1870s. The debate in the evangelical church is this. Is the church supposed to be about preaching the gospel or about helping helpless people? Right? And, and, and what did Jesus do? You want to know what the church is supposed to be about? Look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said. He proclaimed good news to the poor. Proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. So, yes, we are to proclaim the good news of God's grace in Jesus. Absolutely. But what else did Jesus do? What else did he say? came to set the prisoner free, came to restore sight to the blind. He set, set the oppressed free. Should we preach the gospel or help the helpless? Yes. Yes, we absolutely should. This is who Jesus is. It's what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. It's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, it's his indwelling spirit, it's his future return. It's all Jesus. And, and the argument in the evangelical church is taking a little part of Jesus and saying, we're going to focus on this little part. Well, we're going to focus on this little part. Well, you're wrong. Well, no, you're wrong. You're both wrong. You're both wrong. It's all a part of Jesus. And when Jesus lives in us, this is what he does. He preaches the good news through us. And he takes care of the helpless through us as well. It's not either or. It's both and. So keep quiet. Enjoy your work. Don't be greedy. That's helpful. It's, not, it's just not enough. It's not enough. If we want to know what God says, we look all throughout Scripture and we see we don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. It's what we're called to do because it's what Jesus came to do. So here's the million dollar question. Here's the million dollar question. How much injustice 
do you see in your life? How much injustice do you have in your life? I was thinking about this question this week. I realized not much. I'm a white, middle-class male. Not a whole lot of injustice going on in my world. But I see a lot of injustice in the world. I see a lot of injustice around my world. Anything that I would come up and say would be just embarrassing to say out loud. That's, that's happening in my life. And, and I, if I'm honest, I don't like seeing injustice. Watching that video a year ago was really hard. Seeing injustice in the world is really, really hard for me to open my eyes to. But coming face to face with it as the people of God is what we're called to because we don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. And in order to defend them, we need to open our eyes to see them. I was invited into um, a circle of local pastors about a year ago. Um, Most of them are African-American, and they have been so gracious to me. I've sat with them, I've eaten with them, I've listened to them, I've asked questions of them. I have sounded so foolish to them in some of the questions that I've asked, but they have been so gracious to me. And I have learned so much about injustice. The the Tom Robinson issue in To Kill a Mockingbird is still very much with us today. And and, and I know some of you think I'm getting into an arena of politics here when I say this, but all I'm saying is what I've heard from my friends, not from CNN or Fox News. I've heard it from my friends, and I made a decision. If I was going to be the kind of person who doesn't take advantage of helpless people but defends them, I should probably start putting myself in relationship with helpless, defenseless people instead of continuing to listen to media conglomerates that are trying to sell advertisements. We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them, and you can't defend them if you don't know them. So, if you own a company, if you own a business, and you claim the name of Jesus, the question I want to throw throw out to you is this. Is there any oppression or injustice happening under your watch? You you think about your sphere of influence, the people you have power over. Is there any mistreatment of those employees? Are there any women or minorities that get unfair pay? Is your business a place of justice? Because even in our work, even in our work, Jesus whispers to us, we don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. It's who you are. It's because who I am. Middle school, high school students, college students, you see people bullied in the halls. You see kids bullied in the locker room. You see it on social media. I know you see it. I know you see it. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? How do you handle that? The next time you see it happening, I I just want you to be open to the spirit of God whispering to you, we're not going to take advantage of that person. I actually want you to defend them. And you step into that and you be Jesus. You be the comforter in that moment. 
You should probably ask your parents before you do that, by the way. Wherever he leads you in that moment, follow him. This is what the church is supposed to be about. I, I, I mean, the, the injustice that happens in our country on a daily basis is meted out on the most helpless. And who I'm talking about? The unborn. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of babies? It's injustice. And this is what the church is supposed to be about. Christ in us makes us comforters. And as we go into the world, we will see injustice. We will see people oppressed. We'll see it if we have eyes to see. And I simply want us to give the spirit room to say in that moment, I want to be a comforter. I want you to be the comforter in that person's life. I empower you. And if we're open to being the comforter, Jesus will work through us in those moments because it's who he is. It's, 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 it's what he does. It's what he's called us to do. So I'll close with this. Um, there's an Instagram page. I'm not on Instagram, but I heard about it from an article. It's an Instagram page called Humans of New York. And it has photographers go around, take pictures, and they tell stories about um, the, the pictures they're taking. I was looking through some of them this week and came across a series of stories where they were interviewing Hutus, which was the tribe that was killing the Tutsis in Rwanda, except these Hutus were defending the Tutsis. So you can imagine some incredibly moving stories. One of them was, was this pastor, a Hutu pastor. And on April 7th, the day that the killing started, people ran to his church, trembling, terrified. Most of them couldn't even speak. Those who could speak simply said two words, hide us, hide us. There's one boy who, who, who came, couldn't get a full sentence out, but said, they killed, they killed my parents. They're hunting us all. And so he started to hide them in the ceiling and under the floorboards and the latrines. He hid them everywhere he could find space. And eventually the Hutu militia came to the gate in front of the church and demanded that he let them in. And he looked at him, he said, no, you can't come in. And they demanded that he open the gate and the pastor said, you'll have to kill me first. And they didn't want to kill the pastor, so they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll come back later. And as they were leaving, one of them said, thanks for gathering the cockroaches in one place. It'll be easier to kill them here. The pastor was terrified but tried not to show it. So he kept bringing people inside the gate, inside the church. By the time the sun went down that night, he had 300 Tutsis hiding in his church. And they hid there for days. Ran out of food. At night, they could hear the gunfire and the screaming coming from the hillsides around him. And, and he knew, he knew they would eventually come. The pastor said, all my friends abandoned me except for one pastor friend who came at night to warn me when the militia was close. And one night he came and said, the militia is coming for you. The militia arrived, over 50 of them with guns and machetes. They forced their way in the gate, past the pastor, inside the church, started pulling people from the ceilings, from underneath the floor, out of the latrines. Some were screaming, some were silent because they'd already lost all their family members and they just didn't care anymore. 
And the militia lined them up in three lines, prepared to kill all 300 of them. I just want to read what the pastor said about that moment. He said, I looked into the eyes of the young soldiers. I knew most of them. Some were from my congregation. I looked them each in the eye and called them by name. And I could see the courage leaving their legs. None of them wanted to be the one that started the killing, so they began to leave one by one until all of them had run off. We didn't lose a single person that night. Over 300 people survived by hiding in my church. Many of them still call me father. I've given away several brides and weddings since that night. And he goes on to say that he was absolutely convinced that if more of his fellow Christian Hutus would have stood up, they could have stopped the genocide. We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. This is who we are, church. It's who we are. It's because it's who Jesus is. And it's what he called us to do. We don't take advantage of helpless people. We defend them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is way easier for me to sit up here and say than it is to walk out and do. So my prayer is that you would help us as individuals, as families, as a church, as leaders, as employers, as employees, as moms and dads, that you would use us to be a part of helping helpless people, of defending them, whatever that looks like. God, you've given each of us a sphere of influence. You've given us, um, you've given us gifts and abilities and talents, and we want to use those in such a way that that we love each other, but we also we also look outside. We also pay attention to what's happening all around us, and step into some of those hard places. Step into the places that you call us to go into. God, would you give us, again, as individuals, as families, as a church, would you give us the the wisdom to know what to do with what you have spoken to our hearts today and then the courage to leave this place and to do it. And, and, And we do it all in your name for your glory, not for ours not because we're guilty, not because we feel this this sense of guilt, but because we want to be all about helping people who are defenseless and defending them because it's who you are. Help us to know how we can apply this in our lives. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. You're dismissed.